0: This morning, what a precious, precious psalm. I'm gonna read the whole thing for us this, uh, this week and then we'll, we'll dive in together. Psalm 23, it's a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in Yahweh's house forever. I've been reading this week on how churches throughout Christian history have responded to plagues and diseases that have harmed their cities and their their societies. And I've stumbled upon just troves and troves of encouragement from my own soul. It's not an exaggeration to say that the testimony of the early church was in many ways supported and solidified and validated by the frequency of plagues. And I mentioned this a few Sundays ago, but there were uh, countless plagues. I mean, just about every 75 to 100 years through the first several centuries of church history that just devastated the Roman empire. One particular plague killed about a third of their own population. This was in the second century, uh, sometimes killing thousands in a single day. And that plague united the Christian church in how they would respond to these kind of devastating tragedies. And it's a legacy that remains to this very day. Christians determined to respond to the plagues by caring for the sick and by showing the love of Christ to neighbors, both believers and non-believers and It became a way to authenticate that the church was different than the world in many books about these different plagues, they even non-Christian books, they point out somewhat ironically that it was often the doctors who were the first to flee. <laughs> this is a world without you know newspapers or social media, of course or really any way to gather news beyond word of mouth. And so doctors were generally the first to understand when a plague was coming to a society and they were the first to leave. There's all, no shortage of stories of parents who would leave their children, husbands would leave their wives, wives that would leave their husbands out of fear of spreading the plague. Christians, however, were different. Christians for the most part, certainly there were exceptions, but Christians for the most part didn't flee. They, they planted their flag there and, and really sought it as an opportunity to show the love of Christ to the world. Bishop of Dionysius of Alexandria writes this in a hand account of how the plague struck Alexandria, which is in Uh, northern Africa. At the first onset of the disease, he writes, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread of the disease but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Christians, however, because they didn't flee were left behind, and the this crazy thing about the Christians in these early plagues is that they were often blamed for them. Much like Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome, Christians became the ones who were blamed for the plagues, and it will not be surprising to you to hear why. It's because Christians were so eager to be hospitable. They knew that they often had gatherings in their, their houses, and so they were pegged with this. Moses Lee, who uh, pastors a church in Maryland now, but has written much on the history of the Christian church in Asia, he writes that the way Christians responded with hospitality to the plague had two main effects. And this is from, again, the author Moses Lee. He writes this, Quote, Christian sacrifice for their fellow believers stunned the unbelieving world as they witnessed communal love like they had never seen before. And it's worth pointing out here that the, the Roman religions did not have an aspect of caring for each other. They didn't have a, a solidified code of conduct or belief belonging paying homage to their own gods and to Caesar. And so they had never seen a religion in their, in their life. They had never seen or heard of a religion that responded to calamity by love. And secondly, Moses Lee writes, Christian sacrifice for non-Christians resulted in the early church experiencing exponential growth. Did you hear that? (laughs) Exponential growth. As non-Christian survivors who benefited from the care of their Christian neighbors converted to the faith in mass when the plague subsided. What a stunning image that people were convicted by how Christians cared for each other to the extent that when the plague did pass them by, they were converted. This kind of courage, and you know this, this kind of courage is not isolated to the first few centuries of Christian history. This is not a kind of chivalry that's relegated to the bygone era of a... You know, pre-enlightenment world. This is the kind of Christian conduct and Christian ethics that remain to this day. I mean, I'm sure if your Facebook feed is anything like mine, you're seeing picture after picture of doctors and nurses and, and believers that you know are in your family. They're going to hospitals, going to hospitals in Central Park, the Samaritan's Purse is setting up, going to places where they are likely to be exposed to the virus, likely to be Infected, and yet they're doing it for the sake of loving those that are in need. I got a message last night from a member at Emmanuel Bible Church who uh, is a doctor, and his own hospital is is running below uh, capacity right now, and he's not able to to work as much as he would have before this came. And so he's going up to a hospital that's overrun with coronavirus patients up in New York or New Jersey up there. And you think, why would somebody do that? What motivates somebody to do that? And of course it's love for neighbor. There's a lot of other answers for why Christians have that kind of courage. But the shortest answer I can give you this morning is, this is the kind of courage that's described in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a psalm about this kind of courage in the face of death, this kind of courage in the face of calamity. This is a psalm that is, of course, known by non-believers. It's recited at funerals. I've even heard it read at weddings. It's quoted in movies. It's clung to in despair. Very frequently memorized. In fact, for our own Awana students, as they're going through Awana, the first chapter of the Bible they memorize as a whole in Awana is this chapter. It seems like everybody knows this passage. But what is so interesting about this passage and why I'm excited to preach it this morning, and I hope it's encouraging to you, is that there are very few other passages in the Bible where there is such a great gulf between what people think the psalm says and what it actually does say. People have in their mind the idea of what Psalm 23 is about. This is why it's so often read at funerals. There's this idea of it being about grief and sorrow. But then when you actually go word by word through this psalm, which you'll have an opportunity to do in a few minutes this morning, as you actually work your way phrase by phrase through this, you really will be stunned about what this psalm is actually describing. It is describing a life of courage. It's describing a life of comfort. It's describing a life of, and by comfort, I don't mean ease. I mean a steadfast hope in the surpassing beauty of Jesus Christ that sustains you through a tumultuous world. It's courage for calamity it is comfort for those who are confronted with a world they don't understand and can't quite get their arms around. They can't quite get their mind around all that's happening. They, they, had a way of living and they have deviated from that way. The world has turned everything upside down and there is a kind of comfort for the soul that is found in a very tumultuous world that this psalmist that David has discovered and relays it to us about the kind of comfort that produces courage in the face of chaos. That's Psalm 23. I wanna give an outline to you this morning. I'm gonna give you three truths for how the shepherd of our souls shows his glory. There's three different ways in this psalm that the shepherd of our souls reveals his glory to us. And this is the kind of glory that gives us courage. It's the kind of glory that gives us comfort. It's the kind of glory that that helps us trust the Lord in uncertain times, that helps us have courage in a world of cowards. It gives us courage to trust Christ when all of our senses, when all of our lived experiences say otherwise. And this is, of course, a very common testimony of people that say when things go wrong and when loved ones are afflicted with with not just corona but with, with cancer or disease or car accidents, it's very difficult in those instances for people to say, I trust the Lord when everything in your experience is telling you he's not trustworthy. When you have somebody whom, whom you love who has has died and you think, this was a good person. This person here was a good person. They, they tried hard. They loved their family. They were a somewhat moral person, and they died. So how can you trust God in those circumstances? Or I had a business. I had a job. It was profitable. I was providing for my family. And then the world turned upside down for reasons I don't quite understand, And now I've lost my job, lost my ability to provide for my family, lost my ability to care for my kids. My retirement went from next year to, you know, next century. How do you trust the Lord in those circumstances? That's what this psalm is about. And it's not satisfied with a minimal of trusting the Lord in these circumstances. David really expects and describes more than some kind of trust in the Lord that is general. He's really laying forward a path of courage, a path of transcendent courage. And it's transcendent courage because it transcends your circumstances. You know, in those times of doubt and in those times of fear and in those times of of confusion about what is going on in the world... You know this, it it does no good to tell somebody, hey, brother, you just need to trust God. (laughs) While there is truth to that, And you understand the big picture is, yes, you just need to trust God. Uh, Pastors and biblical counselors are often mocked for that kind of advice, right? You have somebody who who is mourning death and, you know, the, the idea of like, oh, you don't want the pastor to be involved or you don't want a biblical counselor to be involved because they would show up and put their arm around you and say, brother, just trust the Lord. And you think, I don't need to know, just trust the Lord right now. That's the way the old adage goes. And so in a sense, that adage is right. A person who is going through doubt and fear and confusion doesn't simply just need to be told, trust the Lord in some general way. But what they do need to be reminded of, what they do need to investigate, what they do need to be told is to trust very specific promises of the Lord. General platitudes aren't generally helpful. But specific promises, specific descriptions of the Lord, specific truths of the Bible are helpful. And if you're listening this morning and you are going through a period of confusion or, or doubt or fear in your own life, let me flip it around and challenge you to ask yourself, what specific promises are you having a hard time holding to that would help battle your fear? that would help battle your worry that would help battle your, your doubts in the face of confusion? Are there specific things about God and his goodness and his sovereignty that you're having a hard time understanding? Because that is where the action is. Where you find the, the kink in the armor, that's what you want to expose. You know, Many people want to cover up their weaknesses, but not the person who's laying before the Lord. He doesn't want to cover up his weaknesses. He wants to find them and expose them. And that's why Psalm 23 is such a powerful, powerful, powerful psalm. It's not simply because of the image that Tyndale invented, the valley of the shadow of death. It's not simply that kind of image has such staying power. It's more than that. It's the kind of specific truths in this psalm that have a way of rescuing the anxious soul, encouraging the doubting believer, and giving really this kind of courageous Christian ethic to the person who would otherwise be weak. So ask yourself as we go through this psalm, which promises in here do I need to trust this morning? Which promises in here do I need to remind myself? Do I need to believe in this this week? This psalm is, is riddled with statements and their effects and their justification. I'm going to phrase it this way. The psalm is a series of truths followed by evidence for the truth, followed by a result of the truth. And everything in this is, is, this whole psalm is put into groups of three here. You've got this claim and then the evidence of the claim and the result of the claim over and over and over again. I mean, you could choose probably six of those things from the psalm to dwell on. I'm going to choose three and, and draw them out to you this morning. The first of these truths is that Yahweh is my shepherd. Truth one, Yahweh is my shepherd. This is a very personal psalm, a very personal psalm. It doesn't start in the sense it's the opposite of Psalm 63, which went out of its way that we looked at last week, went out of its way to not use God's covenant name where you would have expected to find it. Here, David doesn't say God is my shepherd, which would be a common way you might think of it, like God who rules the world. Elhim, the God of the world, is my shepherd. He doesn't even say the Lord is my, my shepherd, I, the, the idea of a, a God who is overseeing his subjects. He doesn't use that word either, which is a common Old Testament word. He uses the name for God. He uses Yahweh. When God meets Moses in the wilderness and Moses says, I'll go tell everybody what you, you wanted me to declare, but I need to know what is your name. When they say who sent me, wh- what do I tell them? And Yahweh said, tell them that Yahweh, sent you. God's name is Yahweh. His name is Yahweh. It's a play on the Hebrew expression for for to be or to have life. God declares that his name is Yahweh because he alone has life in and of himself. Nobody else has life in and of himself. Only God does. And so God's name is Yahweh. And that's how David begins this this Psalm. In fact he begins it and ends it that way. It's bracketed by by God's name. Now I explain this every now and then, but it's worth repeating again. And most English translations, they put the word Lord in these little small capital letters so that you see it. And when you see the little capital letters, that's letting you know that that's actually Yahweh in Hebrew. It's not that there's a totally different Hebrew word for, for Lord. And that's not the word that this is. This Psalm begins and ends with God's name, Yahweh. And I want you to think about how critical that is. For a person who is going through doubts or confusion or grief or worry or anxiety, who is who's dealing with those things, how important is it to know that God has a name, and where we're going with this is that He knows you by name. The God who made the stars, the God who made the universe, actually is involved in your life. brothers and sisters, in my conversion, this was a huge piece of my conversion. I remember when I went to a youth group for the first time, a friend in high school had brought me to to church with him. And the, the youth leader, who was actually a dad in the youth group, began by asking the high school students a question. Do you believe that people's personality, ethics, and character traits are set in stone by age five? That's what psychologists say. Do you believe that it's true? That's how we started the youth group that day. And, and I didn't know any better. That sounded reasonable enough to me. I'm like, sure. Psychologists say it. I'm in. And he looked at me with such pity, I didn't know the Christian art of the rhetorical question. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to answer out loud. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> all the other kids in the youth group look at you. Nothing, nothing was weirder than a youth group than somebody actually answering a question the youth pastor asks. So that happened and he looks at me with kind of compassion and he tells me we believe in a God that can step into the world and can change a person's life at any point in time. And that rocked my world until that moment. I knew that Christians believed in God, of course, but I had never met or heard or encountered anybody that believed that God was active in the world and could be active on your heart We're so autonomous creatures in our mind. We think we're in charge of us and that nobody can do anything to me that I don't allow. And that's part of the reason there's so much fear, of course, when a disease spreads through the world because it is something that's out of your control. And then God comes into the pages of scripture and says, I can act on your life if I want to. And what are you going to do about it? And I'll tell you what David's going to do about it. David is going to respond with love and affection to God because he recognizes that God is acting on David's life for David's good. He's caring for David. He's acting to him as a shepherd. And so, of course, David holds on to the name of God. He wants to know the name of his shepherd. He wants to know what his shepherd's name is. Who's guiding me? Who's leading me? He's not a hired hand that comes in and out and might trade places tomorrow. You want to know the guy. Think even of this in our own neighborhood. We have a a mailman, a a postman who delivers the mail every day. And for the longest time we had the, we were on a a street that didn't have an assigned mailman. He rotated out. There's a different guy. Whoever's picking up a shift, it was like substitute mailman every single day. And so we don't know those people. They deliver our mail, and we might wave at them, but we don't know who they are. Then finally, we get a guy who's assigned to our street. Cliff was his name. And we know him, and he knows our kids, and he knows where they park their tricycles, and he knows when they, they hide stuff in the, in the mailboxes. And we, we know the guy. He was a believer who lived out in Maryland, and we get along with him. We wanted to know his name, How much more important is it to know the shepherd of your soul by name? He's not just, God is not just some detached deity that is reigning over the world. No, he's caring for you, and he gives you his name. Let me explain this way. God is what he is, Yahweh is who he is, and shepherd is what he does. God is what he is, Yahweh is who he is, and a shepherd is his occupation, And he often refers to himself as a shepherd in the Bible. Ezekiel 34 is probably the most famous passage about that, where he rebukes the false shepherds and elevates himself as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. That's the difference between God and the so-called false shepherds in, in false religions. Ezekiel 34 describes those religious leaders in other religions as fleecing their sheep, getting their wool from them, fattening up to eat them. Not protecting them, not willing to lay down their life for their sheep. And of course, we know the way this narrative plays out through all of the Bible. Jesus comes as the good shepherd, and authenticates himself is because he lays down his life for the sheep. How precious is it that God is a shepherd? And his name is Yahweh. What does a shepherd do? He heals the sheep. He protects the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He guides the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. So just, I want you to just be astonished at God describing himself as a shepherd. It's not the kind of language that you would expect. (laughs) Shepherds were not well paid. They were not clean. They were not esteemed in society. I mean, if God described himself as a banker, you would think, "Oh, he has all the treasure of heaven, and that makes sense. Banker is dignified and attire God is a, is a is a lawyer because you know the lawyers are sharp and intelligent and and they also have possessions to dispense, and they have a knowledge of the law and what is is right and wrong, and that would make sense to for God and he doesn't use those kind of more dignified a king that would make sense, and God does describe himself as a king because he reigns but what captures our hearts so much here is that he describes himself as a shepherd. That he cares for us. And that, of course, leads to the evidence. How do you know that Yahweh is your shepherd? Because he cares for you. David says in the second part of verse one, I shall not want. This is a quote of Deuteronomy 2, verse seven. When the Israelites first entered the promised land, where Yahweh tells them, because my name is Yahweh and I will be with you, you will lack nothing, he says. And he gives it as evidence through Moses, the end of Moses' life to encourage the Israelites as they cross the Jordan into Israel. Yahweh speaks through Moses and says, remind them that for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness and they never lacked anything. Now, 400 years later, you have David writing this. And he says, that testimony through the centuries is my testimony. I will not lack anything. It doesn't mean he won't have the right car. It doesn't mean he won't have the right clothes. It doesn't mean he won't have the right house. It does mean he won't lack anything that his shepherd thinks he needs. If your shepherd thinks he needs it, you need it, he provides it. Here's examples. He gives you. He makes you lie down in green pastures. That word makes me is kind of unfortunate in English. It, you know, it sounds like he hits the sheep on the head and knocks him out in the green pastures. But it's a, the Hebrew is a very strange verb tense. We don't have it in English. It's, but it's this idea that he makes me by persuasion it's the idea that he's leading. And so the sheep see where the shepherd goes and follow him because the sheep trust the shepherd. And so you're led to the green pastures. So it's not like he may, it's, a better translation might even be he allows me, but that's too permissive. I'm happy with, he makes me, but understand it doesn't mean by force. It means the shepherd is allowing his sheep to go into the green places. And obviously sheep like to eat grass, not dirt. And so it's good that the shepherd walks them to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, sheep gets a moving water, they'll likely get swept away. The sheep get wet and they drown. Too, their wool is too heavy. They're not the brightest creatures, of course, and you can assert comments about why God chooses those as the example for Christians. <laughs> But the bottom line is that fasting water is dangerous. Sheep need calm water. They need water, of course, to drink. They need calm water. And our shepherd leads us to the green pastures and to the calm waters. And what a pastoral scene this is, isn't it? (laughs) Literally a pastoral scene. (laughs) This is the sunny afternoon. This is the picnic in a park where there's a rainbow on the horizon and bluebirds in the trees, and it's just beautiful. And your blanket is is spread, and everything is just delightful. That's this scene. Last night, we we're sitting down to eat dinner, and Madison points out the window, and there's a hill behind our house that is, is kind of steep, and there's big trees that grow up on it, and the little leaves are just starting to come through, and the sun was setting, and so it was coming across the trees almost at a straight line, and it made the trees this brilliant green color. It was one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen in my life, and we all just stopped what we were doing. We, ha- we had... <laughs> hot food on the table. We all just stopped. We walked away from our hot food and just stood speechless on the patio last night. We hadn't seen anything like, in my life, I'd never seen something that looked like that, like the sky last night. And that's this kind of image. That's where God leads you to those places. How precious is it? You lack nothing and he leads you to the green fields and the still waters. Now, how do you know? What's the proof that God does this? What's the proof that he's your shepherd and that he cares for you? And that's where we go next. The result of this is that he actually saves us. The end of verse two. I'm sorry, the start of verse three. He restores my soul. This is the word for he makes my soul new. This is the New Testament concept of regeneration from John chapter 3. Psalm 19, David describes it as something that all the beauty in the world cannot do in Psalm 19, but when he begins to describe the Word of God, it says, he can restore my soul. That you can be saved through the Word of God, a common refrain through Psalm 119. The Word of God can save a sinner. Your soul is dead in sins and transgressions, and the Word of God can make it alive. That's what happens here. The God restores your soul. He causes you to be born again. Your soul is in chaos in the world and God rescues you. And he takes your sin away from you and gives you eternal life. That's what happens to David here. And this is an ongoing action. His, the, you know, his salvation is a one-time event, of course, but throughout the rest of his life, he describes his soul as being restored because there are doubts, there are trials, there are difficulties that come in life. And David knows that he can always turn and look to the Lord and remember that his soul is restored. This is the image from the New Testament where Jesus describes himself as a shepherd, of course, but notice how his shepherd illustration goes. The shepherd had a hundred sheep and one Goes away and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go fetch the one and brings him back. And then it goes into the coin analogy. What was lost is found. The sheep was lost by going far away. The coin was lost by staying at home. The shepherd goes and finds both, restores both. What was lost is found. That's the image here. It's an image of salvation. The Lord pursues you, finds you, and saves you. And leads you. And one of just the most, I think to me, precious parts of this is the last phrase in verse three. Why would he do this? Why would he describe himself as a shepherd? He does so for his name's sake. I mean, why does God do any of this? <laughs> why does he do any of this? It's, it's not ultimately for us, and I hope you appreciate that. You're not the sun in the universe here. It does, things don't revolve around you, solar system, I guess. You're not the sun in your solar system here. Things don't revolve around you. They revolve around God. This is all happening for his glory, for his fame. God does this. He is the shepherd of his sheep so that he can save us for his glory. The glory of the shepherd, and here's where it's encouraging for you, I hope, the glory of the shepherd is seen in his care for the sheep. If you see a pen of sheep that are diseased and disgusting and the flies circling around them and they're starving and they're muddy and they're caught in the thicket and you see the shepherd over there, you know, kicking it with his feet propped up and sipping lemonade. You think that's a disgraceful shepherd. No wonder his sheep are such diseased creatures. That's not how God leads us though. So do you see how this should be so encouraging to you that God puts his own character on the line in how you are fed. He puts his own character on the line in how you get to water and how you get spiritual provision. God stakes his name and his reputation on your spiritual care. I mean, that is a precious promise. So when you think, verse one, Yahweh is my shepherd When you hear that, go all the way down to verse three. Remember that God is our shepherd and he is staking his own integrity on how well he leads the sheep. On how well he leads the sheep. The second truth the Psalm brings out, I will not fear. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, the way verse 4 is arranged in the English is so poetic and so beautiful, but you can lose the parallelism of verse 1. In verse 1, you have the declaration, Yahweh is my shepherd, and then the movement to the water, to the field. Verse 4 is structured the same way. The declaration is, I will not fear, and then the movement to the valley of the shadow of death. They're paralleling each other here. So, verse 1 is easy. God is my shepherd, and there is sunlight in the leaves and there is smiles on the face and there's a rainbow in the sky and the birds in the trees and it is so beautiful how joyous it is that god is the shepherd (laughs) but then you get to verse four and the sun has set in verse four the verse four is the the picnic you set up and maybe you've had this experience you you see a nice field and you set up a picnic and just as soon as you sit down mosquitoes the size of horses come out. They need their own FAA clearance, and, and they're coming after you, and flies that bite and make you bleed, and then the water is stagnant, and it smells disgusting. You didn't realize this when you're setting out your food, but now that you've walked five minutes from the car to this, what you thought was a beautiful field, and you're being attacked by bats, and the, the swamp reeks of death, and you start to say, how much do we you know, tell the kids just deal with this because that's lunch today versus like, yikes, let's run fast for the car. This is that kind of experience here. The sunset is gone, and now it is just darkness, and it is the smell of death, and it is danger everywhere. How about now, hotshot? Now do you say the Lord is my shepherd? And that's the promise here in verse 4. It's I'm calling it a promise. I was going to call it a fact, but a fact sounds too detached. A promise sounds like too potential. So I I went with the word truth. The truth here, David says, I will not fear. I won't fear at that moment when the sun has set When I'm in the valley, and not on the mountaintop, I'm in the valley, you know, the mountaintop was earlier, and oh, praise God for leading me on the mountaintop. That is gone. Now I'm in the valley, and the the topography of Israel here is interesting that the sheep would have to navigate from Jerusalem over towards the Jordan River, and there's so many dangerous, dangerous, dangerous ways to go there, dangerous canyons to fall in there. The sun will set in some of those canyons an hour or two hours before it sets in the rest of the, the world, just because of how deep and dark they are, and there's thieves, and there are bandits, and there is death. And likely bodies on the side of the road, and the shepherd has to lead his sheep through that place to get to the next green pasture. The sheep get lost, even the Israelites get lost out there. But this shepherd knows we're leaving this green pasture, we're going to that green pasture, and yes, it will be a night in the valley. It is even though is a good way of rendering the SV, it's not if I walk through the valley of shadow death, it is very much a when I walk through that valley, when the darkness comes, because life is not lived in the green fields. You do have to move to the next place God wants you. One commentator writes this, quote, the death David was referring to here is more than darkness. Metaphorically, David is speaking of an intense trial, a time of great uncertainty and danger, which would typically cause anyone to fear. The natural response to being in the valley of the shadow of death would be fear. That would be the normal human response. Some shepherds would be overcome with fear in this valley. That would be the typical response. You're in that valley and you are overcome with fear. Even the shepherds are likely to be afraid. And here David says, I will not be afraid. I will not fear. When you understand how dark the valley is, again, as a metaphor for the deepest and darkest trial, you understand, how can somebody not be afraid in that moment? How? Everybody in the world is afraid. All of my friends would be afraid. Everything in me wants to be afraid. How can you not have fear at that point? And David gives his proof. Because he says, you are with me. The evidence that you won't be afraid, because this is one you want evidence for, isn't it? (laughs) You won't be afraid? I demand, prove it. Prove to me you won't be afraid. And here's the evidence he offers. For you are with me. God is with him in this valley. Yahweh, his shepherd, is by his side. This is a drastic change. It's a change, obviously, in the whole structure of this psalm, because it goes from the third person to the second person. Maybe you noticed that. Earlier, Yahweh, third person, is my shepherd. Yahweh, God, named Yahweh, is my shepherd He leads me, third person, singular. He leads me, he leads me, he leads me. Now, second person, you are with me. Now it's not enough to talk, even his name is not sufficient here. And we're not talking about a God who's attached now to the world, even though I know his name. When I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I don't need to know his name even. I need to have my arm around him. I need him to be here. I need to look at him and speak to him. And of course, he responds to us through his word. So, David can say the proof that I will not fear is that he is with me. How can I be afraid when Yahweh is with me? What a contrast with other gods. <laughs> My mind, it goes to 1 Kings 18. It has to go to 1 Kings 18 where all the prophets are gathered around and they're crying out to their God. They're begging their God, you have to come. We're going to be humiliated in front of Yahweh. Who, what kind of God is Yahweh? So Baal, you've got to come. You've got to come or you're just going to be so humiliating. And they're pleading with him. And remember, Elijah almost really begins mocking them and Baal and saying, maybe he is, do you remember the language? Maybe he's far away. So shout Louder. Like maybe he went on vacation and he can't hear you. So remember what's underneath this is this idea that your God must be really far away. And he can't hear you. You would never say that about Yahweh. You would never say he's too far away. No, he's always, always at hand. Always at hand. Always close by. Idols don't have ears to hear, they don't have hands to actually work. But the bigger problem is that they don't have hearts to love their sheep. Whereas God does. And so when he's with us, we don't need to be afraid. Hebrews 2 verse 15 gives a New Testament spin on this. He describes the fear of death as holding people into lifelong captivity, which Paul calls slavery there. It's so natural. There's nothing more natural in the world than to be afraid of death. So much so that Hebrews 2.15 it's described as the slavery to the fear of death that Jesus frees us from through his resurrection. That might be a good verse for Easter. Here, David says, I'm not going to be afraid because the shepherd is with me. And our hearts can be such a dungeon of fears, can't they? We store up fear in our heart. We cage them in. Sometimes it seems like we even feed off of fear. We lock it inside of us. And so ask yourself if you have fears caged in your heart, if you have fears put in a dungeon of your heart, ask yourself who has the key? Think of Pilgrim's Progress. Who has the key? Who can open the cell your fears are locked in? The key, of course, is hope, and it's in your pocket. It was put there by the shepherd before you got in jail. Put your hope in the Lord. And David says, I will fear no evil. <laughs> Even the fact that he uses evil, almost, he's, he's getting rid of any escape clause here because we want to excuse this. Don't we, we want to say, of course, I'm not going to fear big things, but I'm not going to fear that where well, going to happen to me when I die because I trust the Lord. But certainly there's moral evil in the world that I can fear. There's bad people in the world. Bad people. Even right now, jail is releasing all kinds of criminals onto the streets. Bad people. Can't I fear them? I mean, they're morally evil and they hurt people. And that's the word David uses here. (laughs) I will fear no evil, the moral evil in the world. I will not fear it. And of course... What's he gonna do when he's tempted to fear it? What's he gonna do when evil comes knocking on his door? He has to remind himself of truth one. Yahweh is my shepherd. Our God cares. Sin separates us from God, but God comes to us and rescues us and cares for us. Your rod and your staff, he says, they comfort me. This becomes the result of this. What's the result of you not fearing? The evidence that you're not going to fear is that he's with you. The result of this is that he'll comfort you. And it's just interesting. He comforts you with the rod and the staff. Normal shepherd tools. He's going with the shepherd metaphor still. The rod, and I know you all know this, but the, the rod is the weapon. It's got the, you know, it's three feet tall and it's got the ball on the top of it. And it can whack a wolf on the head and knock him out. It can whack a thief on the head. It can whack an unruly sheep on the head. That's the rod usually used against thieves and wolves and a biting sheep maybe and it comforts me how does that comfort well on one hand the sheep would be comforted because your shepherd is a weapon so that's comfort on the other hand it comforts you because you know the other sheep are not getting out of line without getting a whack <laughs> in the same way in your family never mind moving on <laughs> the staff comforts me the staff comes The staff is taller. It's got the hook on the end. The staff is for rescuing the lost sheep, grabbing him by the neck and pulling him out of the bramble. That's the staff. Sheep are so heavy, and especially when they're stuck in mud, they get weighed down. The staff you need the leverage to pull the sheep out. And so David says, "I'm so comforted, even in the valley of the shadow of death, because my shepherd has a rod, and he has a staff." And David has had this experience, hasn't he? he? He's known both these. He was a shepherd. He knows what it's like to walk among sheep. He knows what it's like to be ambushed from behind by a lion attacking the sheep. He knows what it's like to be ambushed by an enemy who he thought was a, a friend, but turns out to be an enemy trying to kill him. He knows what that's like. And he knows where to find comfort. He's found comfort in Jonathan before. He's found comfort in Nathan before. He's found comfort in the law of God before. He's found no shortage of comfort through the things that God has given him. He knew Jonathan was a friend from the Lord. He knew Nathan was a prophet from the Lord. Obviously he has the the law of God as he describes it in Psalm 19 as a comfort to him. And so David looks at these things because we're tempted to say how we can't talk to God like David did. So where is he? And when we're in the valley of shadow of death, where is God? How can he be with us? How can he comfort us if I can't see him and talk to him like David could? And it's worth pausing and saying, how could David, what was David's comfort like? Was it from a face-to-face conversation with God? Never. It was from the prophet. God said it was from his word. It was from the friend that God put in his life through Jonathan. That's how it came. And God comforts us the same way. I want to be faster here. The third point that Yahweh blesses me. The third truth that Yahweh blesses us. He doesn't just declare that He's our shepherd. He doesn't just be close to us that we will not fear. But thirdly, he actually actively blesses us. He gives us more than we deserve, more than we expect, more than we could have imagined. You see this in verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We're back to the picnic analogy again. The blanket is spread and the word for table here, it's the full on massive spread. It's the same phrase we saw last week in Psalm 63. The table is set. There's a massive meal. You show up at the house. The whole Thanksgiving dinner is laid out there and it is there and your enemies are looking through the window at it. I mean, that's the image here. The other sheep that don't have your shepherd, they're still stuck in the valley and their shepherd didn't bring food for them. They're in the dark valley and there are thieves around. Their shepherd forgot his rod. (laughs) Meanwhile, your shepherd has his rod, has his staff and a massive amount of food, a massive amount of food. And all the enemies are looking in at this. They're looking in at this. They don't have that food. What a blessing, what a blessing it is. I was thinking just how different my kids' experience is when we go for a picnic and I pack versus when Deidre packs. <laughs> when I pack, we're talking juice boxes and half of a sandwich that I threw in a Ziploc bag and threw that in my backpack, and here we go. And when Deidre packs, it is like a Thanksgiving meal packed in a cooler inside a smaller Russian nesting doll cooler and another one and whew, blankets that unzip and fold. Imagine the sheep's perspective on this. We're out in the field, and my shepherd has everything we need. My enemy sheeps, they're just, they're hungry, and they're angry. But that's okay, because my shepherd is close by. This table is not set for every person in the world. This table is set for God's sheep. The exclusive provision here is kind of the point of this analogy. That's why I want to dwell on it for a second. This is, it's so easy to say God has a generic love for everybody in the world that is blanket and uniform for everybody. David knows nothing of that kind of love. There is a common grace through nature, again, which David describes in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 fits with Psalm 23 in so many beautiful ways that we don't have time to talk about right now. But the first half of Psalm 19 describes that general thing to the world. But it is not this kind of specific provision that God gives his sheep. His sheep have their table set. And then we get a weird verb tense change, which you wouldn't notice in English, but it is important in the Hebrew. You anoint my head with oil. This is the first verb in the whole psalm that switches to a perfect tense. In other words, this happened. Everything else is ongoing. Every other verb in this psalm is ongoing. The Lord is in an ongoing way, my shepherd. He leads me in an ongoing way. He's led me before. He's leading me now. Everything is repetitive. He keeps setting a table for me in front of enemies. And then you get to this one. And David uses a perfect tense, one time this happened it happened to him the lord anointed his head with oil now maybe he switches verb tenses here because he's remembering when he was king and he was anointed i think more likely it's speaking again of his conversion it's making it applicable to us that all these other things are true because god saved us he saved us our head when you anoint somebody with oil that oil goes in the head it runs down you wash their feet and anoint their head what an image for how god made david king and what an image for how god saves us bringing from death to life from the valley of fear and the valley of confusion and the valley of darkness and death and chaos that's where we were up in verse four i mean just death and confusion and chaos and david going i won't be afraid i won't be afraid i won't be afraid i won't be afraid and now here he's like this is crazy look at all this food (laughs) and oil on my head Notice how quick the valley went. When you're in the valley, it feels forever. But then you move on to verse five. You're out of the valley and there's food and there's oil on your head. That's incredible. Well, the evidence that Yahweh blesses you, the evidence that Yahweh blesses you is that covenant love pursues you. Covenant love pursues And we get to this in verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. The word follow there, it is the word for pursue. It is the word that's, you know, this word in the rest of the Old Testament is used when your enemies are after you. And that's why they don't translate it pursue here because it has a negative connotation, but it is that same word. In the Old Testament, when this word is used, it is the bad guys breathing down the back of your neck. And David, believe me, he knew what that was like. Very common from David's life. (laughs) David knew what it was like to look over his shoulder and see a lion, as I mentioned that earlier. He knew what it was like to have to hide in a cave because his enemies were roaming through those, those valleys and those canyons to get him, and he would hide in these caves, hoping they wouldn't find him. So he knew what it was like to be pursued. I mean, the most fantastic rescue in his life at the end of 1 Samuel, he's up at the very top, the very... Top of this rock, and the images of Saul's soldiers climbing the rock, and they're almost able to grab his ankle when they get summoned down by Saul to go back to a different battle. David knew what a close call was. David, do you remember? He had to sneak out the window of his house because soldiers were outside to arrest him and kill him. They knocked on his door. Do you remember this? He has to make a mannequin in his bed to disguise him which his wife is able to partner with, and he goes out the window to run for his life. So David knew what it was like to be pursued. And that's not even his closest call. Do you remember two different times he's hanging out with Saul and Saul grabs a spear and tries to, he has to dodge a spear that hits the wall behind him. One time he had to hide behind curtains while the assassin who was being paid to kill him walked into the the tent where they were to get the, the showbread from the priest, while David is hiding himself behind curtains to stay away from him. So David knew what it was like to be pursued. That was the normal course of affair for his whole time until he became king. Even when he was king, remember, he was exiled from Jerusalem. They frog-marched him out of the city in humiliation, spitting at him, throwing rocks at him. Oh, he knew what it was like to be pursued. But here he says, it is goodness goodness. And mercy, the word mercy, covenant love, has said covenant love from God is what is pursuing me. He looks over his shoulder now. It is not Doeg the Edomite. It's not Saul with the spear. Now he looks over his shoulder and it's God's covenant love running full speed, chasing after him. He's tempted to be the wandering sheep and wander away. How are you going to get away from God's covenant love? It will chase you down and grab you and drag you back to the fold. You can't outrun God's covenant love. It pursues you. It pursues you. Will you ever get away from it? Look at the middle of verse six. All the days of my life, it'll pursue me. All the days of my life. You'll never be able to escape this. David's at home, minding his own business. The doorbell rings. He opens the door. There's covenant love waiting outside. (laughs) He goes to the store, thinks he sees somebody familiar, looks around, covenant love following him. Everywhere he goes, covenant love is in pursuit of him. Do you see how different this is from the way most people think God works? Most people think that they have to pursue goodness and mercy. If I pursue goodness enough, if I am good enough, then God will hear my prayers. If I'm good enough, then God will let me into heaven. That's exactly backwards. You don't pursue goodness in order to gain God's covenant love. God's covenant love pursues you and brings goodness with it. When God's covenant love catches you, you, oh, it's got a sister, goodness. You meet both of them. That's what happens to you because God pursues you. You don't pursue God through goodness to get to his covenant. God through his covenant pursues you and brings goodness to you. That's David's experience. I hope it's your experience as well, and it lasts all the days of your life. And what is the result of all this? Finally, the result of God's covenant love pursuing you because he's blessing you is that you will end up in heaven. This is how the psalm ends. I will dwell in Yahweh's house forever. This is where this story ends. The sheep started in a green pasture, went through other green pastures, through a dark valley, had a nice spread before him, had his head anointed with oil, and it ends up in glory Don't read too much into this psalm. There's no promise in here that the bad guys won't catch you. There's no promise in here that you won't befall evil. Evil can catch you. Evil can get you, even with your shepherd there. But it just ends with the worst case scenario again is that you're in God's house forever. And that's where it ends. I will dwell in Yahweh's house forever. The word ever just means forever and ever and ever and ever. Ongoing to the end of the ages, I will always be in Yahweh's house. Now this psalm is traditionally a Palm Sunday psalm. It's often preached on Palm Sunday and that's because of its connection to the life of Christ. Jesus is obviously the shepherd. However, he declares himself to be the shepherd. However, Jesus in the final week of his life certainly needed this psalm to strengthen his own soul. Jesus walks into Jerusalem With cheers and praises. But he knows that the march to Jerusalem will end at the cross. It will end with his death. He knows that. He is literally going from the mountaintop down in through the valley along the brook of Kidron. They're up through the past the lion's gate through the sheep's gate. He is walking through the valley. He'll be crucified on the other side of that hill and buried into that mountain. That's where his story goes. What would comfort his soul in that time. Knowing that the Lord is with him. Uh, Every step of the way, he's crying, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane that's overlooking this valley. And how important is it for him to know that the Lord is with him? Only to find out that his sin is imputed on him, he is in, in very many other ways alone. His friends are asleep, but that's okay because the Lord is with him. You know, it's interesting that this psalm, it bridges between Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. Psalm 22, the king is killed. That's what happens in Psalm 22. The king has nails put in his hands and his feet and his body is fed to dogs and bulls. That's how Psalm 22 goes. Psalm 24 who can ascend to God's holy hill? Who can go into the house? Who can go to God's house? Only him with a pure heart. Only him with a clean hand. Only him who has not lifted up his eyes to another who has made no false vows. Who is that? And the Psalm 24 ends with the gates of the city being opened for the king to come in. Psalm 22 ends with the king dead. Psalm 24 ends with the king welcomed into glory. And Psalm 23 is your picture of Jesus as our shepherd and our king. That's the bridge. That's the connection. How does he go from death to being welcomed into glory? How does he go from being crucified for our sins? Bearing the sins that we couldn't bear. Making the penalty that we couldn't pay. Because he led the life that we couldn't live. Dying as our substitute to being welcomed into heaven. He goes because he is the shepherd. When the Lord has prepared, the Lord prepares the table on Thursday night for him to share with the disciples. The Lord anoints his head with, the, with oil. And covenant love follows through Jesus Christ now to us. Lord, we're grateful that you are the great shepherd of the sheep. That your love follows your children. I pray for anyone who's watching or listening to this that doesn't know you. I pray that they would look into their hearts now. They would look at these three truths. They would ask themselves, are you our heavenly father? Are you our shepherd? Are you my shepherd? If you are, Lord, we pray that you would drive out fear pray that David's declaration would be ours. Make it ours, Lord. We are so prone to fear. We fear the unknown. We fear fear a world that is out of control. We fear a world that we don't understand. But we have you. So, Lord, give us confidence from your goodness, which you have proved to us through all the ways you bless us, through comforting us, through... Correcting us, we're grateful that you use the rod to break pride in our hearts. You use the staff to pull us out of our errant ways. You use your spirit to anoint us. You use your spirit to provide for us and to encourage us. And so we have confidence that because of our faith in you as our Shepherd King, that we will dwell in your house forever. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you wanna learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.